Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. I'm very honored and happy you're joining us. This is the Paul Leslie Hour, and on this episode, we're welcoming record producer and songwriter Alan Reynolds. He's an inductee of the Musicians Hall of Fame and the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. He's more known as being a producer, but he has written some songs, and they've been recorded by some of the most iconic singers of our time. Alan Reynolds is very associated with Garth Brooks. In fact, the bulk of Garth Brooks' work, the first eight studio albums, were produced by Alan Reynolds, and a lot of people associate their success and quality with the production that Alan Reynolds did. So before we get Alan Reynolds on the phone... We have a surprise for you. Who would have believed Garth Brooks would be on this show? But what can I say? I'm very grateful. I'm going to ask one question of Garth Brooks. What does Alan Reynolds mean to you? There is not a bigger question that you could have asked Garth Brooks than what does Alan Reynolds mean to me? Uh, Alan Reynolds means everything. Because, you know, we're not only talking a producer here. You're talking a mentor. You're talking a second father. For me, and I, and I, I love my dad. This man was that good. Um, his enthusiasm, his ability to cut through the crap and just go straight to the point, is uh, is a gift that uh, well, I wish I had, but all of us wish we had. It's it's he's a he's a strange kind of paradox in the fact that he is the most humble man you'll ever meet. But at the same time, he might be the most confident man I've ever met. And to be confident and be humble is something very rare, and I'm not sure I've seen in more than just him. Um, And with that confidence, it makes you not only want to be on the ship, but you have confidence where the ship is sailing. And the utmost confidence that that ship is going to arrive right where you wanted it. And that was it every time. We'd start an album, started the original Garth Brooks album, and we did the No Fences album pretty much at the same time. And after No Fences and the success that it saw, I I thought we were dead in the water. There was no way we could follow it. Alan Reynolds had all the confidence in the world that Rope in the Wind would be even bigger. And when he was right... That that gave me the confidence to go on for another 150 years, simply from Alan Reynolds and his belief. You know, they they say that faith is what gets you there when you can't see where you're going. And that faith is in Alan Reynolds, and he's a great leader. Everybody that's on the ship with him turns to him and loves his confidence, loves his vision, and follows it. That's a great producer. That's a great mentor great second father. For me, that's Alan Reynolds. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to introduce this man. Alan Reynolds is an accomplished record producer. He's produced such artists as Garth Brooks, Don Williams, Crystal Gale, Emmy Lou Harris, Kathy Matea. He's also an accomplished songwriter. Reynolds has had songs cut by Johnny Cash, Don Williams, Crystal Gale, Jerry Lee Lewis, Waylon Jennings, and many others. 
In 2000, Alan Reynolds was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. It's my great honor to say these words. Welcome songwriter and record producer, Alan Reynolds. How are you, sir? I'm fine, Paul. And you? I'm doing good. It's a great pleasure to have you on here. Well, thank you. I want to kind of get a little bit of your early history. Okay. Most stories are best from the beginning. Where are you from? I was born in Arkansas, uh, outside of North Little Rock. Um, basically, I grew up in Memphis. And those are, you know, Memphis is right on the border with Arkansas, so I kind of claim both states. And what about the music that you loved early on? What were you into? I've told people that Memphis was really... Uh, kind of a musical crossroads, so I, I think I heard everything there, and, you know, I, I listened uh, through different periods. I, I remember in, in, I guess in junior high school, there was a, a country station I listened to a lot because I liked uh, the disc jockey guy who called himself Sleepy-Eyed John. Then later, there was Dewey Phillips with Red Hot and Blue, and that was pop and R&B music. Um, there was a, a wonderful radio station there, uh, WDIA, that was a black radio station. And I had friends there and, and loved that music. So, you know, all really kind of, kind of all across the spectrum. I uh, heard a lot of different things growing up. How did your parents feel about your interest in music? You know, they were okay with it. I I look back on that, and I'm very grateful. Maybe they just trusted me, but uh, they never said a discouraging word to me um, about being in the music business. They knew how much I loved music, and uh, it must have just made sense to them. Now, you were saying that you heard all this music across these different genres, from country music to more early rhythm and rock kind of music. Today, would you say that you have a favorite genre of music? No, I, I don't guess I, I would say that. I I mean, if we're talking about the music that's coming out today, I have a harder time finding things I respond to, you know, but I'm an old guy now, so maybe that's part of the problem. <laughs> but um, I don't find myself listening to the radio a great deal anymore, except for talk radio. I listen to uh, public radio a lot. And then I've got my trusty uh, iPod, so I can load it with the things that I like, and, I, and that's just kind of become my preferred way of listening to music these days. Well, tell the listeners out there, if they were to do some snooping around on your iPod, what kind of stuff would they find? It would be kind of like I was describing my growing up. It's a real smorgasbord of music, a lot of different kinds. You know, there, then there are some areas that I don't like as well as others, but uh, you'd find a pretty good cross-section of music on my iPod. A gen generous portion of it would be uh, country, uh, as I've loved it and experienced it. But I'm, I'm, I have to say that uh, contemporary country music, I just don't find myself responding to very much of it. So what are some of the artists that you would find the most of on there? Waylon Jennings, Don Williams, 
uh, Willie Nelson, Bob Dylan, uh, people like that. Mark Knopfler is a big favorite of mine. Those are some of them. You have good taste. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people know you as more of a record producer, but you are in the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, and a lot of the songs that you've written people would know them. But I'm curious, do you think of yourself as more of a record producer in terms of what you've done or more of a songwriter? Well, I, you know, I've, for years I was I was a songwriter and I came to Nashville as a songwriter and that was my focus uh, early on. But even when I was still living in Memphis, I was doing producing. I was working a day job and, and living in studios a lot at night and producing is something that always fascinated me and as a songwriter you're one of your one of the things you do after you've written a song you like is to try to make a demonstration recording so you can show it to people and try to interest somebody in recording your songs and so that naturally gets you into the studio trying to get a good recording of your song and and I always liked that part, so I was always drawn to production. And I think my songwriting uh, years did a lot to inform the production work that I did. So to me, as a producer, songs are everything. The, the artists that I always followed and admired were artists who brought songs that I liked. And uh, the artists that I really liked, I, I I couldn't wait to hear what songs they were going to bring the next time they put out product. And so um, it was kind of a natural progression for me to move further into into record production. But always my record production has been founded on the search for great songs. And something I thought was really interesting was listening to some of the recordings that you did where you were the, the name you were the recording artist. Uh-oh. <laughs> I enjoyed it. There was a song called Wrong Road Again that I know that Crystal yeah. Gale cut, but I heard your version of it. I thought it was very good. Well, thank you. When I first was around the music business, uh, I thought I wanted to be a recording artist because that's the most visible thing. And, uh, and I did a little recording along the way, but uh, thankfully I never had a, uh, any great success with it and, and soon discovered that that really wasn't the life for me anyway, and I was a lot happier behind the scenes. But early on, I did uh, certainly did try my hand at that. Would you say the fact that you were on both sides of the microphone, did that help you when it came time to produce another artist? Yeah, I think it helped a lot. It helped to know, you know, what it felt like to be in front of the mic and how much little things like how the headphones were set up and, and other things so that you, the artist, can really communicate with what's happening with the band. And, um, you know, that gives you perspective. And, and also experience knowing the kind of things that would throw you off as a singer. So, uh, yeah, I think it, it definitely, uh, I've always felt like that helped me a lot. I, I think it helped me know a lot of little things about how to help make an artist comfortable in the studio so that they could do their best. <laughs> 
We're joined by Alan Reynolds. I'm hoping you can tell us about the role and the influence that Dickie Lee had in your life. Well, Dickie is, uh, I might not have ever known about the commercial music business if I hadn't met Dickie. That came about because I had uh, early on, uh, back when I was uh, just out of high school and and, uh, in college, um, I had a friend who played bass, and I I was asking him one time to, uh, would he teach me to play bass? Because I thought, you know, maybe I'd get some gigs and play in a band. And and so um, I went to his house for one day, and he taught me a few things. And then the next time I went to his house, he said, hey, I'm playing in a band, and they're rehearsing out at Memphis State uh, University. And and, uh, I can't go. Why don't you go in my place? And I said, oh, man, I don't know enough to do that. And he said, that's how you learn. I'll lend you my bass. So I went out to Memphis State and and met Dickie Lee. And he was the guy that uh, my friend had been playing bass for. And Dickie was uh, writing songs and, and wanting to record. And he and I hit it off. And I uh, offered to get a vocal group together to you know to be part of his band and and did that and we just have been close pals ever since and still are and uh, uh you know we got to writing songs a lot we we wrote together for years and sang together and and I met Jack Clement through Dickie because uh, at some point we got ourselves on on the label on some records and um, the first time we were going to record, uh, the engineer rode up on his motorcycle and leather jacket and tattoos, and it was Jack Clement. And I, I was so uh, taken with this guy, and uh, the three of us became lifelong friends. So that that's had everything to do with my uh, having a place in her and finding a place in the music business. I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more about Jack Clement. Cowboy Jack. Well, Jack was one of the most interesting people I ever met, and, and immensely talented, uh, but also really uh, fun-loving, light-hearted guy. We laughed a lot together. He and Dickie and I did, and and he was sort of uh, sort of my role model uh, in the early years because I he was the you know Dickie was the first songwriter I met, and and Jack was one of the next successful songwriters I met and and listening to his songs and being a fan of his work certainly had an influence on me and he never told me how to do how to write or do anything but he was there as a sounding board and he was hard to impress <laughs> and I uh, and I think that was um, good for me you know it made me dig harder and, and try harder and and uh, trying to write some kind of song that would impress him. Because if you wrote a song that didn't impress him, all you'd get out of him was a, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and if you, I wanted to get a, yeah. So that was a big influence on me. And Jack, uh, you know, was a man of all traits. He was a songwriter, publisher, record producer, could have been a successful artist if he ever really put his focus on that. But one of my dearest, dearest friends. Who would you say taught you the most about record producing? 
I would guess I, you know, I, I learned the most from being able to watch Jack at work, and and that is a great privilege sometimes to just be allowed to be a fly on the wall while things are going on. So I would watch him, and I, I didn't always um, understand what he was doing or agree with him, but you learn from that too. You know, you, it helps you form your own opinion. But I think Jack and I had a lot in common when it came to our appraisal of songs. He had a real nose for what was real and what was phony. I remember he laughed one time and said, I'm not a phony. He said, I may be an old frog, but I'm not a phony. <laughs> <laughs> and he he really had a low tolerance for it. And so did Sam Phillips, had a very low tolerance for music that was too phony and crafted and too cute, you know, and uh, he had an ear for the real thing, and I, and I think that exposure to that standard um, markedly influenced me. What would you say makes for a good producer? What are the qualities? That's kind of hard to say. I mean, as a producer, you sort of do whatever you can think to do to help the artists present themselves and the, and the music that they have. You help them in the process of selecting the music, and that's probably one of the, the most fundamental, uh, important things you do. And then you just try to make a comfortable environment for everybody so that they can hear each other well and communicate well. And, and then you do you interfere with that process as little as possible and uh, do your best to kind of steer the creativity and help people listen to what they're doing. And once, I mean, if you do that, then well, the, the path, you know, those are some of the qualities that, that I think are important in a producer. The producer really is kind of, um, you're, you're sort of the, and then between the the record company, the record companies are not creative at all. They manufacture and distribute, sell the product, and basically they're usually a bad influence on the whole process. But you're you are uh, responsible for the record label. You're responsible for the budget and all of that. But you're really the third ear for the artist helping find an attractive way to frame a song and frame their performance and help them listen to and evaluate their own performance and and get that magic, you know. And then as a producer, you, you have to be able to recognize it when magic has happened. And I think I was, I was fairly good at that. Because sometimes you can get locked into trying too hard in the studio, and you can you can have it and not realize you do, and you can go past the point. Anyway, I love production, and it was my I always called it my favorite puzzle. There's a couple of your songs I want to ask you about writing and kind of their influence. The first one being Five O'clock World. Yeah, I, I uh, at that time I was working, I was managing a branch bank for, it was First National Bank at the time, it's First Tennessee now, I think, but in Memphis, I was 
Moonlight and the Music. And so that song came right out of my life. <laughs> I would put in my day's work. And in fact, I would put in my day's work and then uh, often be working in the studio uh, sometimes until the sun came up the next day and, and then still be at my desk at 8 o'clock. So Five O'Clock World was pretty autobiographical. And uh, it came to me first as a, as a melody. And I liked it and came home from work one day and the words just started coming. And uh, so that's kind of how that song was born. At the time, I was writing for uh, Screen Gems, which their head office was in New York, but they had an office in Nashville. Dickie Lee and I were both writing for them, and we would write up a batch, a batch of songs and come up to Nashville and make demonstration recordings. And, uh, and then they would pedal them and try to get recordings and five o'clock world when we came up and recorded the demo for that and it ended up being pitched to this small independent label up in pittsburgh i think it was called cohen c records and they tried to record it with their group but didn't feel like they caught the magic and asked my publisher if they could have the track that, that we had recorded in Nashville. So the publisher agreed to that. The label up there paid the musicians again and um, and used my track, took my voice off and put theirs on and added uh, some strings, I think. And basically, the record was cut here in Nashville. But I always liked that song because it kind of came from a real place. I like that song a lot, too. And when I was doing research for this interview, I said, oh, man, I had no idea you wrote that song. <laughs> yeah, that one that really helped tide me over uh, spiritually, I guess. It didn't make me near as much money as I thought it might, but but it uh, was a, a big success and it, and it helped me believe that I could do it. And like I say, at the time, I was working for the bank and moonlighting the music. So it was a, it was a real kick for me to, to have that success at that time. The other song I wanted to ask you about, the song that you co-wrote with Bob McDill, Catfish yeah. John. That was written when um, like Jack Clement had decided to start a record label. And he wanted me to manage it for some reason. And one of the first things I did was uh, ask Bob to make an album because I always really liked his singing and I loved his writing. So he started work on the album. And sometime during that period, uh, he wanted to get together with me and write some songs. And we wrote five or six, several of which became part of the album that he did. And then Bob went on to a very distinguished career as a songwriter and and did not pursue being an artist. But Catfish John was first recorded by Bob for his album for that little independent record label. Bob and I read a, were readers and um, and talked a lot. And when we get together to write, we spent a lot of time just chatting about things, and we were fascinated with. Uh, the uh, Mississippi River Delta and the music it had produced. And we talked a lot about that and about the South and uh, the music that had come from the South. And 
Pepper's John really was uh, about, uh, not about a specific person, but about kind of a, an amalgam of uh, people we had known, black people that we had known. So the um, idea of Catfish John came from that. And that's another song that I always enjoy. So what was it like for you to be inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame? It was amazing. I was totally surprised. I didn't expect it a bit. and It still uh, is a thrill for me to uh, imagine my name alongside uh, others in that Hall of Fame. I mean, some of my big heroes, Harlan Howard and and uh, people like that, Jack Lemmon, even uh, Irving Berlin, I think, is a member of that Hall of Fame. One of my biggest heroes. You know, I didn't ask you this at the beginning, but I was just curious, uh, and now that you bring this up, I wanted to know if you were a lover of the the Tin Pan Alley, the early American songbook. Oh, yeah, and I got a lot of exposure to that as as a kid from my parents. Plus, there was just, you know, when I was a kid, uh, there was a lot of that music still around, and uh, the American Songbook is uh, pretty amazing. And Irving Berlin is, uh, you couldn't find a better role model for uh, melodies and for clean, clear lyrics. Just amazing. Amazing poetry. I have to agree with you there. One of the, the few songwriters in history that his lyrics were as strong as his melodies. Yeah, and that's another thing I'm very fond of, his melodies. I, I've always been, I, I, as a producer, I, I told people that if the song didn't pull me in musically, I didn't much care what it said. And that's, as I was looking for songs and listening for songs, melody was always important to me. Today, I, I don't hear much melody. It's more rapping or chanting and that's one of the reasons i think i have a hard time with today's offerings we mentioned a couple of the people that you've written songs with the co-writers bob mcdill dickie lee would it be possible to pick a favorite songwriting partner i'd be hard pressed to pick an absolute favor i i loved writing with both those guys and i I did a little bit of co-writing with other people. Basically, I I didn't co-write a a whole lot beyond those two guys. You know, I probably wrote maybe a couple of songs with Jack Lemmon and uh, the odd song here and there with someone else. I I wrote some songs with a girl named Susan Taylor, who was Don Williams' partner in the original Pozo Seco Singers before Don went solo. What was her name again? I'm sorry. Susan Taylor. Susan Taylor, okay. Yeah, she was the voice on the... the, They had a big recording called Time that uh, was the Pozo Seco Singers. And uh, I remember the first time I heard that record, I pulled over to the side of the road. It just knocked me out. And I always loved her voice. And after I moved here, I met her and and actually produced an album on her for Jack's label. So I've always had fun writing with her, but basically I just didn't co-write a lot. But uh, the people we're talking about, I've had great times writing with them. Uh, Bob McDill, there was a time uh, early in the early years of my being in Nashville, and, and I guess in the last year that I was in Memphis that Bob and I 
quote kind of on a regular basis and um it was great. Like I say, we both like to read and we've talked about books as much as we would songs. So it was always fun to get together with him and, and I always liked what we came up with. There's a song that Bob and I wrote called I Recall a Gypsy Woman that uh Will and Jennings recorded and and I just love that song. I, I never would have written it alone. Don't know if he would have written it alone. Beyond those few people, I just never did a whole lot of co-writing. At the beginning of the interview, when you were talking about the artists that you'd listen to, what you would find in your trusty iPod, one of them, I think, was just one of the great singers of our time, and that would be the late Don Williams. Tell us about meeting him. I met him when when the Pozo Secrets were still together, and uh, Dickie Lee and I went over to meet him and, and pitched him a song written by Bob McDill, which they recorded on the last album they did together. And then after that, the, the album didn't do much, and, and uh, he and Susan disbanded, and Don moved back to Texas and went into the furniture business with his father-in-law. So I, I uh, then meanwhile, Jack, started his record label and, and I talked to Susan Taylor wanting her to let me do an album on her and she was a little reluctant at first because she was kind of burned out with the business but finally she agreed and we started an album and somewhere along the way as we were doing that she said uh, she had heard from Donnie as she called him and uh he was unhappy in the furniture business <laughs> in Texas and, and was going to come to town at some point. And uh, she wanted me to have dinner with him when he came because she thought we'd like each other. And uh, I said, okay. So when Don came, we did have dinner and we did like each other. And he said he was wanting to, you know, try to get back to the music business. And he thought he probably be six months or so before he back. And I said, well, when you do that, if you decide to do that, when you do, give me a shout and, and we'll see if we can work something out. And uh, it probably was not a month later. I got a phone call and he was here <laughs> with his family and kids in a, in a U-Haul truck. That was ahead of my schedule, but uh, we got together and I ended up uh, hiring him to work for Jack's publishing company and, and be a songwriter for that company and told him that we would uh, record him a little further down the road. And so uh, time, time went by, I finished Susan's album and and Don seemed happy and where he was writing songs and I was liking what he was doing, and then one day he said, well, Reynolds, when are we going to start recording me? <laughs> and I said, well, I guess right away. So we started work on, on his album, and uh, it was so much fun. I mean, Don and I were like brothers back in in those days, and doing that first album was huge fun. It was like unwrapping a present, that beautiful voice of his and the song sensibility that he had. And we, we, uh, with, thanks to Jack Clement, we found a wonderful rhythm section to back him up. And Don, once that album came out, it, it, he very quickly became a star. And that album still sounds beautiful to me today. And it had some classic hits of his on it. Amanda, for one thing, 
Bob McDill song, and um, Come Early Morning, another Bob McDill song, The Shelter of Your Eyes, and song that Don wrote. And Don was really a, a, a neat person and had a voice that had this rich richness about it. You know, a lot of people have may have a richness in a certain register, but if they move up to a higher register, they, their voice will thin out. Don's didn't do that. It, it kept that texture and richness no matter what key he was in. So we, we did two albums, uh, his first two albums, and then we quit working together. Finally got back together, you know, maybe 15, 20 years later and did, uh, or, or longer and did, uh, uh, another album. But, uh, he was, uh, you know, just an artist that I really uh, always appreciated. And some of his recordings are among my favorites. And Bob McDill, uh, was one of his primary songwriters. And together they did some memorable work. Most of all, Good Old Boys Like Me, which I think is one of the best songs and one of the best recordings I ever heard. We're joined by record producer and songwriter Alan Reynolds. I'm hoping you can share with us a little bit about your time working in the studio with Crystal Gale. There were some great, great songs made that you produced. Thank you. Yeah, um, uh, Crystal and I worked together for nine or ten years, and and it was one of the sweetest collaborations I've had in my career. And uh, uh, part of it, I think, was uh, well for me. She's she was such a good singer, and she's also just a really delightful person. So it was uh, it was great working with her. And I I think we had a lot. Our taste in songs, we had a lot in common when it came to that. So we, you know, we got to try a pretty broad range of music with her, and uh, she impressed me again and again. Was just a very intuitive singer, just a natural. What about your time with Kathy Matea? Well, that was that was great too. That came along. Uh, in the mid eighties during a time when uh, I had just almost uh sold my recording studio and went back to songwriting and because I was not very happy with the direction of things at that time and and then i I had an epiphany and decided I was not going to sell my studio that I was going to stay there and make the best music I could, whether anybody wanted it or not and soon after i made that resolve, I got a phone call about this young artist named Kathy Matea, and got together, and, and we liked each other and decided to work together, and it uh, it was successful for her, but it also really renewed my, my spirit and uh, got me back into having fun with producing music, so I owe her a lot for that experience, too. It was a lot of fun. Kathy comes from a little more to the folky side of country, and I guess in a way, so do I. And so we we had a we found some great songs and had a really good time with Garth Brooks. When you met him, when you first encountered him, 
was there any kind of feeling that you had or any kind of thought that you had that this is going to be a very successful recording artist? Not when we first met. I um, I had, before we met, I had met with his manager who had played me a bunch of Garth songs and demos. So I heard Garth singing a bunch of his songs and I really did like what I heard. And I guess probably a month before that, I had said to my engineer, you know, uh, Kathy's career is really getting legs under it now. And uh, I wish I could find a, I'd love to find a male singer that I could have as much fun with as I'm, I've been having with Kathy. And it was probably a month later the, or so that uh, his manager called me and, and he said, I don't know if you're looking for anybody. And I said, well, I'm not looking, but I'm open. And he said, well, I hear that. So we got together and he played me a lot of this music and I, I liked it. So I said, well, let's the three of us get together. And we did. And I liked Garth, but he was pretty reserved, pretty quiet. I did with him what I was in the habit of doing with uh, with someone that I had met like that. And I said, I, you know, I like what I hear. I like what you're saying to me. What I propose is that we uh, do a couple of recording sessions together and see how we work together. Because this is an this is an important connection for you. You know, you need to make sure you're hooking up with somebody that you're gonna be productive with and I don't want to get hooked up with somebody that I don't enjoy so let's do a couple of sessions and then we'll look at it and, and if we uh, feel good about it then we'll go ahead and if we don't then all you gotta do is say well thanks but uh, you know quite what I'm looking for and we'll part uh, as friends and so uh, we did that we did two sessions and we cut four songs and a couple of them were number one records down the road. But, uh, you know, as we worked together, I was very impressed with him. And uh, it, my admiration grew pretty quickly. And then after we finished, I sat down with him like a Dutch, Dutch uncle and, <laughs> and, and, and talked to him and said, uh, you know, this I think this album is going to get you way down the road. And uh, this is the start of your career, and you need to make sure you always remember it's your career and uh, make choices accordingly. And I talked to him about, you know, hiring good people and all that kind of stuff, all things that I didn't need to say because he was way ahead of me. And he already knew all of that stuff, I think. And, you know, once that album came out, his career really started taking off because he's so magical in person. So by the time we were done with that first album, I thought he was going to do well, but I had no idea he was going to do so well. <laughs> I don't think anybody saw that. Why do you suppose he has done so well? What do you think it is, that, that the Garth magic? Well, I, I have to go back to my fundamental, which first of all is songs. I think he brought great songs to the table, and I think he had a lot of wisdom about that aspect because Garth's a good songwriter, and when we met, he had a whole basket full of good songs that he'd been writing. And uh, But on that first album, he didn't want his name on more than half of the songs. And he said, that's my, that's my limit. He said, I hope that I can write well enough to be competitive and have some of my songs 
on the album, but I don't want more than half of the songs to have my name on them because I don't want to send that message to the songwriting community that I'm going to just do what I write because I'm going to need them and I want them to know that I'm open. And I thought that was great wisdom for a newcomer. And so he proved that to me because we had we had cut 10 songs and decided one of them didn't suit us. And we were looking for that 10th song and I brought up several songs that he already had that had his name on them and he wouldn't touch them. Uh, we later recorded them, but he wouldn't touch them for that first album because he didn't want his name on more than half. And I think that had a great deal to do with his success. And um, and so that's the fundamental. And then beyond that, it's just Garth. He's a real solid human being. He loves what he does. He loves people. And he I've never knew any artist who was so unconflicted about being an artist. A lot of artists are happy to be an artist and happy to be popular, but they wrestle with the side effects of popularity. And Garth, I never detected anything like that with him. He just handled it like he was born to do it. And I never saw an artist have more fun on stage than, than he does. And that just shows. I mean, people people pick up on that. They know when you're real and when you're not. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I credit those things a, a whole lot with his success. But, you know, the hit factor is something nobody can explain. He, he has it right away. He knew what he wanted to do. He knew what kind of show he wanted to put on. He knew what kind of staging and what kind of band. And he was like fully formed almost. Once we got through with that first album, it just took off. I've never seen anything like it. Of the albums that you produced with Garth, could you pick a favorite or the one that you think was the best? No, I couldn't pick a favorite. I could pick some, but I, you know, among the favorites would be the dance, which I think is just an amazing song. And, you know, that's a song we wouldn't have had if Garth had been wanting to record only songs that he had his name on. And, you know, it was, but he was at a club called the, the Bluebird and heard the songwriter sing that song with his guitar and Garth's reaction was, Oh my God, did anyone else hear what I just heard? <laughs> and afterwards he struck up a conversation with that songwriter, Tony Arada, and asked if he could have a copy of the song, told him how much he loved it. And then uh, as we were working on his first album at some point, you know, we're listening to songs together. And at some point he says to me, uh, he's got a bunch of songs that he's collected over the last year or so, and and um, I said, well, I'll be glad to listen through those with you anytime you want to. So the next time we got together, he brought in this box top lid that had a mound of cassettes on it, and said, uh, you said you wouldn't mind listening, and here they are. <laughs> and uh, I took them home, and among them, there were some really good songs, and, and um, several that we ended up recording in time, but there was one song, The Dance, that just knocked me over. 
because it was this beautiful economic little poem that had so many different levels of meaning. So the next time we got together, I asked him about that song. And I said, how do you feel about that song? He said, I like it. I said, well, how much do you like it? He liked it a little. He said, I love it. And I said, well, if you love it, I think we ought to record it. And uh, we did. And it's a, as you know, it's just a real clean, simple recording. It has just a simple little rhythm section and a string quartet. It's so powerful. I can hear it now and, and get bumps, chill bumps from it. And and it's been a mainstay for him uh, for, his, for his whole career, still is. So that one would certainly be one that I would name. And it's one, as I say, that we would never have had if he had not been open to the work of other songwriters. Another example of that is Friends in Low Places, which he did not write. Another example is two of a kind working on a full house, which he did not write. So, you know, I offer that up as a as a wisdom tip for any would-be recording artists. Never take the mindset that you want to write everything. Always try to be open to the possibility that someone out there might write something that you would just die to have your name on it. So anyway, that's kind of where I'm with favorites. There's a number of, I mean, I liked most of most everything we did. There's probably only one or two that that I have I've had a little less enthusiasm for. But and the deal that I asked for from Garth and Kathy and Crystal and everybody that I've ever worked with is, let's look real hard for songs and put our back into that effort. And if either one of us, like let's both of us listen and bring songs to the to the listening session and talk about them. And if either one of us has a problem with a song, then let's put it aside and we can bring it up again next time we get together or the next time. But let's look for songs that we both feel strong about. And that's kind of the way we worked. It's called Allentown Now. I'm hoping right. you can tell us about where so many of these great songs were recorded. Jack's Tracks, it was called then, Jack's Tracks Recording Studio. And there have been a few guests of on this show who've talked about it. Bonita Hill, who uh, mentioned that the, the doors were closed and that there was no photos to be taken. Right. What was that about? Well, it was, first of all, the place was uh, Jack Clement owned the building uh, initially, and initially he had an art and photography studio there, and then that he moved that, and when he did, I was pestering him to uh, open a, a uh, to put in a uh, an in-house studio for the songwriters to work in and play in, and because we had an extra, at that time we had an extra recording console, so he did that. I named it Jack's Tracks because it was Jack Clement that owned it, and it was a 16-track studio. And then a, a few years later, I bought it from Jack and kept the name, and then that became the place where I did all my work after that. And I made that place as best I could. I made it a refuge for 
artists and songwriters. And I did my best to keep record labels out of there and uh, keep the business part of the business away from the place and make it just a nice creative haven. I didn't have a sign outside and I didn't want any outside business. I didn't rent it out to anyone. I, I did let Jim Rooney do some wonderful work there because he's my buddy and I loved the music that he brought there. So he did a lot of work with Nancy Griffith there and John Prine and Iris DeMent and uh, artists like that. And I was happy enough to have him there. But basically, I didn't want outside clients because it was my workspace and, and I wanted it to be ready for me when I wanted to use it. So that way it was there for me. Like if a recording session was coming up and the artist and I were looking for songs, then after we had a batch of songs, the first thing I would do would be to get the artist to come in uh, with just, and we'd just have a guitar player and we would uh, make work tapes of the songs we were considering. And it's amazing. It's such a simple, inexpensive thing to do. And it was one of the most effective tools as a producer that I ever had because you get to hear the artist sing the song. They get to hear themselves and work, work out with it a little bit. And you get to figure out what key sounds best. And, and you can tell pretty quickly whether it's a good song for that artist or just a good song, but not that great for the artist in question. So by having my own studio available there, it was easy to to uh, do that. And I never had to, it made scheduling easy. If I wanted a certain musician, all I had to do is, is ask, when are you available? Because my studio was already available. So it was, it was a great production tool. It was, it was not a money maker. It was a workshop, and uh, served me well that way. And then I, when I was finished and decided I was retiring, I sold it to Garth Brooks. I'm happy to say, and uh, so it's still a musical place, and that makes me happy. But it was, it was a sweet place. It was, it was always a sweet, sweet energy there. How did you feel when you found out it was going to be called Allentown? Well, I was pretty blown away by that. <laughs> it was um, that was a sweet, sweet gesture on his part. What would you say is the best thing about being Alan Reynolds? Oh my! Uh, well, I I don't know where to start. It's like every day I get up and count my blessings, and I always did. And um, I think I, I think of myself as one of the luckiest people ever. I, the timing of my life when I came along and and first got acquainted with the music business, uh, it was beautiful time. And the years in Nashville were some of the finest years ever for a songwriter, artist, producer, uh, music maker. It was just wonderful and I got to know my heroes and I got to know Harlan Howard and Chet Atkins and Owen Bradley and and um, on and on Bobby Bear and Waylon Jennings and, and on and on artists that I admired so much musicians that I can't believe I mean I've told people for years 
that Nashville was rich, and I didn't mean money. I meant the talent that was drawn here and the world-class musicians that I got to work with that I'm still just stunned at the caliber of talent that I got to know and, and work with. It's just it, it just boggles my mind. So those are some of the best things professionally about being Alan Reynolds. Beyond that, you know, I've got great kids and grandkids, and I feel like I've had a storybook life. That doesn't mean I didn't work hard. It didn't just fall in my lap, but but it happened, and I don't know why. We had these labels that we applied to you, record producer, songwriter, inductee of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. Who would you say Alan Reynolds is at heart? Uh, gosh, I don't know how to answer that. I'm a music lover at heart, and I'm so grateful I got to be uh, in that game uh, as a professional and, and have a place among all these uh, people whose talent I admire so much. And uh, other than that, I'm just uh, I'm just a journeyman who, uh, for some reason, got dropped into this place at such a choice time. I saw again and again where people would refer to you as Songman. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a compliment. Well, I have to say, after talking to you this last hour, you went back again and again and again to how important songs are. Yeah, I think they're everything. You know, Maggie Cavender, who founded the Nashville Songwriters Association, also gave them their motto, and, and, or their, I guess, their byword, which is, it all begins with a song. And that's been my touchstone as I've said, all the way through. And other than that, it's, you know, it's not rocket science. It's just have trying to have fun and, and uh, communicate with the world musically. That takes a good song. Our guest on this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour has been Alan Reynolds. I always like to let the guest at the very end just take the microphone. You can go anywhere you want, totally open-ended. My last question, what would you say to anyone listening? Um, gosh, I would say um, music uh, matters, and uh, and it's, um, it's one of our best forms of communication. It's healing, it's challenging, it's, it's, um, it just means so much. It's, as any business, it's as subject to corruption as anything else we love. And uh, if you ever want to be a part of the music business, then you should try to make the music as good as you can make it at all times. And and that's good business. And uh, if you want to be in the, in the music industry, bring it your best. Well, Mr. Reynolds, thank you very much for sharing with us. Well, it's been my pleasure. It's nice meeting you, Paul. Wish you, wish you the best. Well, I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you and those who do what you do, and uh, and especially uh, those who uh, have some measure of freedom in what they do and get to to uh, try to present 
good music for people. Over the course of my life, radio has gotten so um, corporate that it's it's not the kind of not even close to the entity it was when I was young. I'm with you. You you mentioned in your letter to me. I I, I think it's a very creative potentially a very creative industry and a very in my best experiences with radio it was they were as much involved in giving people the music they need as the people who created the music and i hope you have uh, have and continue to have a lot of freedom in what you bring well i appreciate that and <laughs> there's less and less places for people like me on the radio no <laughs> I, I missed that. I mean, I, I truly missed that. It was, it was. Uh, I knew in my early years, I, I knew a lot of radio people and uh, liked them, and they were able to to do their own programming. It was a wonderful time. I thought it was kind of interesting. You were mentioning the artists that were on your iPod at the beginning, <laughs> uh-huh. and here I am, a guy born in the eighties. And we're listening to the same artists. <laughs> are we? Those are the same people. If you click on most listen to artists, it's Willie Nelson. It's Don Williams. It's that kind of stuff. Yeah, not, that's great. <laughs> not what's on the radio now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I believe in my heart there's still a, a big audience for that. You know, with uh, in my days working with Crystal Gill, people that were not country music fans would I'd play something for them that I had done with Crystal and I'd get reactions like is that country music? I like that. Mm-hmm. And I would think well damn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well I think actually uh, some of the screening is actually opening up ears. I've had some friends tell me they have Spotify or that kind of thing um, for their kids and their kids are finding and listening to music like all across the board, like from the 30s and 40s, as well as contemporary things, and and uh, to the delight of their parents, you know. Maybe we'll not get too locked down to the top 40. Well, sir, I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day and a wonderful rest of the weekend. Well, thanks, Paul, and uh, good luck to you. All right. You too. Happy trails. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Alan Reynolds. I want to thank Alan Reynolds for being our special guest and giving us such an in-depth and insightful interview. I would also like to add, everybody, tomorrow is Alan Reynolds' birthday. Happy birthday, Mr. Reynolds. I have to give thanks to Benita Hill. I had a dream of doing this interview, and she encouraged me to try and make it a reality. Of course, thank you to Garth Brooks for joining us and answering my question of what does Alan Reynolds mean to you? My utmost gratitude and appreciation go to the recording engineers, Matthew Buster Allen of Allen Sound, and special thanks to Jeff Pike for editing and mastering the Alan Reynolds interview. I also want to thank Nancy Seltzer for her assistance. I really can't thank you enough. Credit is due to Jeff Pike for composing and performing the Paul Leslie Hour theme song. We also used the John Goodwin song, Born Blue, in this episode. 
Well, everybody, if you haven't subscribed to the Paul Leslie Hour, I encourage you to do so. It's completely free. It's my mission to help people tell their stories. I'm honored that people trust me enough to do so. That's all I've got. Until next time.